I want to say thank you to Zach uh, for preaching last week, and uh, <clears throat> we had a good time getting a friend married off, and then getting to go to Kansas City to see our uh, new grandson, uh, newest grandchild. Uh, they named him after my father, Herbert. People used to say my dad and I looked alike, and uh, he kind of looks like my dad, which means he kind of looks like me, but he has more hair than I do. So <clears throat> anyway, it was really fun to be there and, and be with him. And um, so, but, but it's great to be home with our family. You're our family, and it's really wonderful to be here. Um, <clears throat> over these last weeks, we've been looking at the life of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. And uh, up to now, really, really through the end of this chapter, the, the key question is, who is Jesus exactly? Who is he? How do we approach him? How do we know how to live our lives with him and walk with him every day? And what we see in these verses is such a contrast, I think, uh, to the way the, the verses we're going to look at this morning, to the way the world looks at Jesus uh, and relates to him. There are a lot of people, I think, that look at God as someone who wants to make our lives miserable. Uh, he, he just doesn't want to have anybody to have, he didn't want anybody to have any fun. Uh, constantly trying to appease God, and, and, and uh, we think of God as someone just like that. And then there's, there are people that, that think of God as a spiritual force that they can, they can connect with through meditation. Unfortunately, they think of Eastern meditation which is emptying your mind versus Christian meditation, which is filling our minds with the scriptures. So they have a very warped view of what it means to, to relate to God. These verses give us an answer on how we can relate to God through faith. And in verses, uh, in the first 23 verses of, of Mark chapter 7, there's been some heated discussions with the Pharisees over religion versus the gospel. And there's this inevitable showdown that's coming. And that ends in the crucifixion. But this isn't the time. And so Jesus leaves Galilee and he goes to the region of Tyre, north in what was is modern day Lebanon, to spend time alone with himself and also with his disciples. So at the top of the outline, it says this, taking, uh, talking about what is clean and unclean <clears throat> has prepared us for the, the account of this Gentile woman's faith. Uh, in his northernmost trip, <clears throat> Jesus' interaction with this non-Jewish woman reminds us again that God's kingdom is meant for everyone. He deals with her as an individual whose faith helps clarify her own. And on his way back to Galilee, uh, actually after he goes through Galilee, he, Jesus heals a deaf mute in, in the area of Decapolis. Both of these instances from Jesus' life illustrate <clears throat> just two of the many ways that our Lord shows compassion for others. And what we see in this woman and in the friends of this deaf man is a faith that believes that God is who he says he is and then trusts that he'll do what he says he'll do. And so you have this on your outline, that faith is being confident that God will always do what is right for our good and his glory. For our good and for his glory. 
So follow along in your Bibles as I read from Mark 7, beginning at verse 24. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it. Yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an evil spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek born in Syria, Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Yes, Lord, she replied, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of Decapolis. There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk. And they begged him to place his hand on the man. And he took him aside, away from the crowd. Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven with a deep sigh and said to him, Ephatha, which means be opened. At this the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Verse 36, Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but the more he did so, the, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. This is God's word. Well, the first thing I want us to see in these verses, number one on your outline, is that that Jesus cares for the nations. So Jesus leaves this place. He goes to the vicinity of Tyre, <clears throat> to this seaport village in modern-day Lebanon. This is the only time Jesus travels beyond the borders of Israel on his own. Of course, he was in Egypt as a boy, but on his own, this is the only time he's outside. And <clears throat> one commentator said this about the significance of him going there. They said Tyre probably represented the most extreme expression of paganism, both actually and symbolically, that a Jew could expect to encounter anywhere. So Jesus goes to enemy territory <clears throat> because he knows it's going to be a battle there. But by going there, he wanted to get away from things. He, didn't, he, he maybe thought no one would know who he was. So he goes, and, but, but Jesus, we have to understand, is all about reaching out to the nations. Um, and this is what should be on our heart as well. He wasn't afraid to go beyond the border of his country. He goes to get some rest, but he can't escape being noticed. And word gets out quickly, and the most unlikely individual shows up and asks Jesus for help. And she, if anyone, does not have the credentials to come before Jesus. What are those credentials that she lacked? She was a woman, number one, not a man. She was a Phoenician Gentile, not a Jew, not Jewish by birth. She was a pagan, 
Uh, as a Syrophoenician woman, she would have been a close neighbor to Israel, and she would have known the customs and the Jewish uh, customs of the day, and so she would have known that it was not right for her to approach a rabbi. She knew that she was on the wrong side of the tracks in every way, so to speak. But she had this incredible focus. She sought out one person and no one else because she knew that if anyone could help her, Jesus could. She was likely shunned by her neighbors because of the presence of evil that was in her home. And with no one else capable of helping her, Jesus, she knew, was her one true hope. And what a great picture for us of being single-minded in our focus on Jesus and seeking after him. She had to know how socially unacceptable it was for her to talk to a Jewish rabbi, but she didn't care. And this is crazy. Jesus goes into this house and he wants to go in incognito. To, and, and this woman goes right into the house, uninvited. Think about that. <clears throat> Think about somebody coming into your home uninvited. They just walk through the door. That's what this woman does. And she begs Jesus, look at verse 26, because she wouldn't stop. In fact, in the Matthew 15, which is the parallel account in Matthew, <clears throat> the disciples asked Jesus to get her to stop because they couldn't get her to stop. And she was not going to take no for an answer. And then look at verse 25. And this is on your outline. She came boldly but humbly. She fell at his feet. And she was persistent. She's talking and pleading with Jesus without interruption. <clears throat> Sometimes maybe we know people like that that will just keep talking. And they'll keep talking until they get what they want. That's this woman. Again, what a great model for us of how to approach God with boldness, with humility, <clears throat> and with persistence. God is infinitely patient with us. And so if we don't see results and the situation that we're in <clears throat> maybe seems as impossible in coming to him as, as, this, as it was for this woman, uh, we don't stop. We don't back off. We keep asking God. We keep coming before him. God is accomplishing something great in our lives. He's cultivating in us a great faith. And so we deliberately wait for God to act, to act while we keep asking. Why was she so bold? Well, you know there's courage. And then there's the courage of a parent. And that's how she's coming, I think. <clears throat> you know, when you see your child in trouble, you will do just about anything you can to help that child out. And that's what this woman was doing. Maybe she was naturally timid, but she didn't care <clears throat> because it was her child who needed help. And she was going to help him. So it's not surprising that this desperate mother was bold and willing to, to break all the rules. So her first response was to go to Jesus. We can understand that. But her second response we can honestly say changes the course of history. Because of Martin Luther in particular and his take 
on this little mini parable of Jesus. And it was a parable. Verse 27 is short. It's like a sentence. But it was a parable. Look at verse 27 again. First, let the children eat all they want, Jesus told her. For it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Jesus says this to her as she's on the floor begging for him to help her. So this direct statement, remember a parable is a metaphor. It's a likeness. And on top of that, the word Jesus that Jesus uses for dogs is not the common word that meant scavenger, like a, a street dog, but it was more like a domesticated puppy. It's almost as if Jesus, though, is testing this woman's faith. And he's saying, I must first minister to Israel, and then I'll minister to the Gentiles. Paul says the same thing, doesn't he, in Romans 1. Uh, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. Then what does he say? To the Jew first, and then also to the Greek. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying there's an order to things. And the order is that I must go to the Israel first, to the Jews first, and then the Gentiles will get the gospel. But this is still cutting for her. You know, we live in a dog-loving society. Uh, <clears throat> we've had a dog, and, and uh, I remember being sad and crying on the way. I cried at Hallmark commercials, but I cried on the way to take this dog to put him down. It was so sad. And we loved our dog. Uh, we decided not to get another one. People kept asking us, when are you getting another dog? Well, we're not going to get another dog. <laughs> this was for our kids. Uh, they're gone, so we're okay. Um, I remember how shocked I was when, I, when we lived in Paris to find there was a whole cemetery in the middle of Paris for pets. Yeah, Parisians are another thing about pets too. But anyway, the first century was not at all like this. In, in Jesus' parable, he gives both a challenge to this woman and an offer. And she gets it. And she responds to both. And that's what we see in number two. So number two on your outline is that Jesus cares for each individual. So look at verse 28. She says, yes, Lord, she she replied, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Now, think about this and think about Jesus' heart for the nations still. What is the first thing that Jesus says when he meets his disciples after the resurrection? Now take this to the nations Go into all the world and preach the gospel. And so she accepts this. She says, okay, I get the order of things. This goes to the Jews first. But she does not get all offended by this. She doesn't say, how dare you speak to me like this? That's what we might say today, right? She says, okay, I understand I don't have a place at the table yet. And I don't deserve it. But isn't there ultimately enough food at this table for everyone in the world? And I want mine right now. That's what she's saying. Martin Luther was really moved by this story because in this story, he sees the gospel. Though it was somehow, it's like, though we see how separated we are from God, yet at the same time, how much he loves us. How do we know that? The response that Jesus gives us. It's like she's saying, I accept that there's an order here, 
but make me an example of what's to come for everyone else. You know, in our American culture, I think we're pretty good at saying, you know, this is what the law says, and so this is what I deserve. We know how to stand up for our rights and on our own goodness and say, this is what I'm owed. This is what needs to come to me. But this is not at all what this woman is saying. It's not where she's coming from. She's coming to God with a very specific request. And you have this on your outline. In essence, she's coming to Jesus, not on the basis of her own goodness, but on the basis of Jesus' goodness. She knows he's different. She knows he's not just a rabbi. She's saying, give me what I don't deserve. Not because I I deserve it. I'm not good, but on your goodness. Based on your goodness, I want it now. One commentator calls her feisty. I think that's a pretty good term for this. She's feisty in the best of ways. Look at verse 29. Then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. Actually, a better translation would be, wow, such an answer. Or some translations say, wonderful answer. Incredible answer. For that answer, all the blessings you want will come. And what's so crazy about this is that Jesus has been trying so hard to teach this to his disciples. And what's been their response? Like in the previous chapter in Mark 6, remember when Jesus says, for they had not understood about the loaves, their hearts were hardened. That was the response of the disciples. But this Gentile woman is the first one in the gospel of Mark to understand a parable. She gets it. Her beseeching pleases Jesus. And I love what one commentator says. He said, she enters the parable and then answers Jesus from within the parable. I think that's so amazing. She's like a female Jacob. I will not let you go until you bless me. That's what this woman's attitude is like. In the best of ways, she has a feisty faith. She's not too proud to accept what the gospel says about her and how unworthy she is. And yet she really gets that it is for her. And that's what struck Martin Luther. And here's what we can't miss from this. You can't stand before God on your dignity. You can't stand before God with your rights. You can't even stand before God with your suffering. God owes you nothing. We have to get this. This is persistent faith in a real God who loves us so much and and wants to be honored by our great requests. He wants our persistence. And so it's likely that you right now have some pressing need in your life. And maybe it's as near as impossible for you as it is for this Syrophoenician woman. And her situation with her daughter. So how do you deal with it? You pray. 
but not in a wishful thinking kind of way. You don't pray with an entitlement. Look at all I've done for you, Lord. Now you need to do this for me. But with confidence in God's power, with confidence in God's goodness, because he knows what's best for you and he will give you what is best for you. And so this is on our outline. Faith is refusing to attempt to manipulate God and relentlessly depending on him. You know, there are a couple of ways that we can miss the gospel. We can miss the gospel by having a superiority complex and being too proud and being a self-made person and saying, I can do this on my own. I don't need God. Or we can miss God on the other end of the spectrum with an inferiority complex and be so self-centered that we say, I'm so awful, God would never love me, never want to give me what I need, a request that I'm asking him for. You know, one pastor wrote a counseling letter to someone who was very depressed in his congregation. And here's what he wrote to him. He said this, You say it's hard to understand how a holy God could accept such an awful person as yourself. You then express not only a low opinion of yourself, which before God is correct, but also too low an opinion of the person and the work and the promises of the Redeemer, which is wrong. So yeah, we can understand that we're sinners but we need to understand that our Savior gives us a place at the table, that we can come before him. How can you and I be as bold as this Gentile woman was? I think most of us can understand the unworthiness part. Yeah, I'm a sinner. I'm separated from God. I get it. What we don't get is the part where what this one commentator called this humble feistiness that says, I will not let you go until you bless me. We don't see, we don't see that we're insulting God by not approaching him like that with this humility and this feistiness at the same time. Humility coupled with faith is pleasing to God. Like in James 4, it says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And at the same time, we're to come boldly before him with our requests and honor him with great requests. That's the feistiness. That's asking God for for what only he can do. So would you describe your faith as a feisty faith? What is it in your life that you need to be more persistent with God in prayer about? To grab a hold of him and and seek him in prayer and say, I'm not gonna let you go until you bless me. But that means we don't let him go. We're seeking him constantly. And humility left no room for entitlement. It avoids blames, doesn't bear grudges. 
And look at the result. Verse 29. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. In Matthew 15, in that, in that passage, Jesus commends her for having literally mega faith. That's the Greek word, mega pistos, mega faith. And tells her that her daughter's been healed. And upon returning home, this persistent believing woman found her daughter well. When Jesus declares that the demon is gone, I think it's really fascinating that she doesn't ask for assurance. She doesn't uh, leave with a doubt in her mind. It's, uh, she's probably skipping home or maybe running as fast as she can to see her daughter because she knows, she has confidence that her daughter has been healed. So here are the truths that we need to understand here, that we are all dogs under the table getting the crumbs. We have no family rights. We don't deserve a place at the table. But also that there's more than enough for all of us at that table. Jesus lifts us up. Jesus gives us the power and the right to become his children and he gives us a place at the table as a member of his family. That's grace. We don't deserve it, but that's grace. And that's what hit Martin Luther during the Reformation. That's how this woman and her faith impacted history. And if you think that you have a place at the table because of something that you've done, be careful. Because it's not about you. It's about God's grace in Jesus that we grab a hold of by faith. And so we need to see ourselves as the dogs at the table that we are so that we might be transformed into the children God wants us to be by his grace. <clears throat> Our sin is great, but God's grace is greater. And then in verses 31 to 35, Jesus hears our cries for help. Number three, Jesus hears our cries for help. Starting in verse 31. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of, of the Decapolis. There, there some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk. And they begged him to place his hand on, on the man. And notice they don't specifically ask for healing. They just, it's almost like they're saying, God, would you bless this man? After Jesus took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. We're pre-COVID here. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Ephatha, which means be opened. So this account is in such contrast with the Syrophoenician woman. There Jesus healed this little girl from a distance. He wasn't even near her. It was through her mom's faith. But there was no poking or pointing or touching like there was in this account. None of that. In other words, in healing this man, Jesus, in doing what he does here, is doing what he's is doing, not because, this, but because he needs to do this, not because it's some hocus pocus, but because the man needs it. 
He meets this man right where he's at. Remember, he's deaf. He's mute. He can't talk. So from Tyre and Sidon, Jesus makes his way back to the area known as the Ten Cities or Decapolis, which would be east of of Galilee. That's a long walk. That's 120 miles approximately, kind of round trip. That would be like walking from here to Dana Point and back. That's what Jesus did. That was in there. That was the way he got around. He walked. This man is deaf. He couldn't speak well. And he had friends, though, that were as persistent as this Syrophoenician woman. And they don't specifically even ask for healing, but that's what they got. You know, growing up a deaf mute, this this man must have been a, a little bit of a spectacle. And so I love how Jesus deals with him. What does he do? He takes him aside. Privately, it says. Look at verse 33. He gives him this personal attention. He's compassionate with him. This man couldn't hear. And so why all the touching and poking? Because Jesus is communicating with him right where he's at. He's using sign language. The fingers in the ear and then removed in verse 33 meant, I'm going to remove the blockage from your hearing. The spitting and the touching of the man's tongue in verse 33 as well says, I'm going to remove the blockage from your mouth. And then Jesus looks up to heaven, look at verse 34, to show that God is the one who will do this. Jesus wants him to understand that God will heal him. And then Jesus has this deep sigh also in verse 34, which is an expression, I think, of of love and compassion for this man and maybe the frustration of, of, and the grief of living in a broken world. And then Jesus says in Aramaic, Ephatha, which means be opened. And look at verse 35. At this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. One thing that I think is so fascinating about this is that Mark uses a very interesting word for deaf man, a deaf mute in the Greek. It's the only time it's used in the New Testament. And that same word is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in one place, Isaiah 35. And I want to read a little bit of Isaiah 35 to you. It says this, Be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with divine retribution, it says. He will come to save you. Then with the eyes of the blind, then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. And it's like Mark is saying here, the blind are seeing and the deaf are hearing and those who are unable to talk are shouting for joy. God has come. The Messiah is here. Just like it says in Isaiah 35. And one of the questions that comes up when you look at Isaiah 35 that came up for me is, what's this divine retribution? Jesus doesn't come with divine retribution. Where's that at? Jesus came not to take power, but he came as a servant. That's like the theme of Mark, that Jesus is a servant. So where's the divine retribution? 
Well, the answer is that Jesus didn't come to bring divine retribution. He came to bear divine retribution. It was on the cross that Jesus totally identifies with us because only, he can only heal the sick. He can, he can only raise the dead. He can only do all the things he did because he paid the penalty for what we deserve. And then the fourth thing we see in these verses is that Jesus deserves our praise. Verses 36 and 37, read them again here. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He had done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. We don't know what this man said when he could finally talk but I'm guessing he was saying, praise God, thank you, Jesus, for healing me. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I can't imagine him saying anything else. And then Jesus tells him, don't tell anything to your friends. And the end of verse 36, but the more Jesus said that, the more they kept talking about it. Now, we can't justify disobedience, but we can sure understand what's going on here. You know, there's a, a French expression. It says, c'est plus fort que moi. It, it means it's, it's too much for me. I can't contain this. I can't keep it in. It's overpowering me. I have to say something. I think that's, if this man spoke French, that's what he would be saying. C'est plus fort que moi. I have to tell people about Jesus. I have to tell them what he's done for me. I love Mark's conclusion in verse 37. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He had done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. It's like in Genesis 1, 31, when it said, they, then God looked over all he had made and he saw that it was very good. Indeed, he does everything well. And what we see here in this man and his healing is, is a picture of the story of redemption. We see creation, that what God does is good, that everything he does is good. But we see the fall of man. In this deaf man, we see sin. And we see redemption. It's the miracle of healing in this man. And we see restoration, that God's kingdom has arrived in Jesus. So what does this have to do with you and me? How can we walk differently in our lives because of this story? Jesus is not a tame lion. That's an image that comes from the Chronicles of Narnia, but you don't have to have read the Chronicles of Narnia to understand this image. Think about this with me. Jesus comes to the Syrophoenician woman and indirectly in the parable calls her a dog. Yes, a domesticated puppy, but it almost seems harsh. And then Jesus comes to this deaf mute and he's so delicate and so sensitive in taking him aside from the crowd to not embarrass him. Jesus is just unpredictable. Yes, he's the wonderful counselor. He is the mighty counselor, the perfect counselor. I'll give you another example in John chapter 11 at the tomb of Lazarus who's died. Jesus encounters Mary and Martha and he meets 
Uh, and, and Martha is the first one he meets. And Martha says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus rebukes her. And then just a little bit further down, Mary comes and says the exact same thing. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus weeps. So why the different responses? Because Jesus always gives you what you need. It's different from other people. But he's reaching out to you as an individual. He cares for you. He loves you. And here's another example of it. Joseph's brothers put him in a pit in the city of Dothan. And Joseph prays and there's no answer. God doesn't seem to hear him. He's sold into slavery. Years later, Elisha is in the same location at Dothan. And he's in trouble, surrounded by the enemy. And he prays and asks God to deliver him. And chariots of fire come and destroy the enemy. That's what Joseph wanted. Why didn't Joseph get that? Because God deals with you as an individual. Here's what we see that we can't forget in our own lives, that God is just as present in his silence, like the way he dealt with Joseph, as he is in all the noisy chariots that he gave Elisha. He was, go, he was giving them both exactly what they needed. So you have this on your outline. He always meets us as individuals right where we are. Is he quite safe? Safe. Who said anything about him being safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Another way to live this out, and this is so relevant for us today, is Jesus, is, as this amazing example, gives us this example of reaching out across cultural and across racial, racial barriers. Cultural and racial barriers were no problem for Jesus. Gender barriers were no problem for Jesus. And just as he reached across them, so should we try to walk that same way. You've got it on your outline. We should go out of our way to reach across cultural, racial, and gender barriers and try to break those barriers down. That's our role as Christians. That's our role as little Christs following Jesus. We have to be careful not to say, oh, I'm over my racial intolerance. I have a very open mind. And then we find ourselves looking down our nose at people who are bigoted, that we consider bigoted. That will happen if there's anything more important to us than our identity in Jesus. It can't be our moral goodness. It can't be our curious open-mindedness. It can't be our race. It can't be our culture. It's only when we see Jesus who, in a sense, became a dog for us so we could sit at the table. And he became mute so that we could have a voice to praise God with. Jesus works so hard to not be offensive, to not be misunderstood, to be sensitive. 
we can't be too proud to accept the gospel, what the gospel says of our unworthiness. And we can't be so despondent or too despondent to accept what the gospel says about how much he loves us. You know, Charles Wesley wrote a hymn that I think perfectly captures what's at the heart of this text as well as our response full of joy. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of His grace. Hear Him, ye deaf, His praise, ye dumb, your loosened tongues. <laughs> your loosened tongues employ Ye blind, behold, your Savior come and leap, ye lame for joy. My gracious Master and my God, assist me to proclaim, to spread through all the earth abroad the honors of thy name. Jesus is the God who cannot be hidden. How will you respond to him today? Think about it. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, now we see what you had to do to make us your sons and daughters so that we can sit at your table Change us, Lord, with the knowledge of what you did so that we can have a holy and humble feistiness to come before you and honor you with big requests. Search us, O God, and know our hearts. Try us and know our ways and see if there's any wicked way in us and then lead us in the way everlasting. In the strong name of Jesus we pray. Well, may God himself, the God who makes everything holy and whole, make you holy and whole. Put you together, spirit, soul, and body, and keep you fit for the coming of our master, Jesus Christ. The one who called you is completely dependable. If he said it, he'll do it. Amen.